The first sermon I ever preached in my life was on Joshua 2. I was a new seminarian at the bad seminary, where at that point I had studied some Hebrew, and I think the only professor at the seminary who still regarded the scriptures as God's word was the Hebrew professor. Uh, so I loved his class. The other professors were all discounting scripture and barely thought it was worth the paper it was printed on. But here was this Hebrew professor who loved the scriptures and simply taught the scriptures from the scriptures. And I became uh, not only in love with the Hebrew language, but the Old Testament scriptures, and particularly to see Christ in the Old Testament scriptures. And so I can't find that sermon that I preached back in that seminary, but that's fine. That was more than 25 years ago anyway, and much has changed for me since then. Uh, I was not even, I certainly was not Reformed or Evangelical or uh, barely Biblical at that point. But what I recall is that I picked the passage because the account of Rahab, which is amazing on its own, for me really showed how the Bible connects together saw Christ so obviously in this and saw the redemptive theme in Scripture so clearly in this. For me, there's something about Rahab. Uh, So I have 25 years and about 25 pages of notes. And then we didn't get to talk about her last week, so I spent a whole other week thinking about her and making more notes. And I can't share all of that this morning. But Rahab is not one of those figures that you sort of read in passing and then never hear from her again. Rahab is, as we'll see this morning, an important historical person in redemptive history, that we might see that and to understand the account of redemption. Before we read it, let's go before the Lord together in prayer. Indeed, our God, you are the God of revelation. You speak. And throughout the ages, in various ways, you have revealed yourself to your people. And then in a perfect providence, you have seen that that word under your inspiration, was recorded and has been preserved such that we can come today and still have access, not just to a word, but to your word. And so it is that we would pray for eyes and ears of faith. To that end, we need your Holy Spirit to come now and to bear witness to the reading and to the preaching of your word, that we would receive it for what it is. And to that end, as always, we pray for the preacher in the pulpit, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, Joshua 2 really is a great narrative. Uh, There are some points of repetition for emphasis, but it moves pretty quickly. So let me read the entire narrative as one, and then we'll break it down. Listen then to God's perfect word. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them, she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. 
but she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted And everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God of heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sister, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. The men said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. From Joshua 2, in this narrative of Rahab, we're going to see Rahab's protection of spies, Rahab's profession of faith, and then Rahab's provision of rescue. So a passage that really centers on Rahab and centers on her confession of faith begins and ends with Joshua. Joshua sends two spies into Jericho, and then the spies return and report to Joshua. Now recall that in Joshua chapter 1, the Lord has simply told Joshua that they will cross the river, the Jordan River, and then the Lord is going to give them the land of Canaan, as he has promised. Joshua Sending out spies was not a lack of faith. God had told him that they would conquer Canaan, Jericho first, but he's not told them how to do it or what to do. Joshua was simply being a good army commander, spying out the land to determine what to do. 
So picture what's going to happen. They're going to cross the Jordan River. They don't even know how they're going to do that. And then once they've done that, they'll be standing with their enemy in front of them in a fortified city, and then the Jordan River in a flood stage behind them. And so Joshua is simply using the means that are at his disposal. One commentator observes this. This is not an unspiritual course of action. Indeed, to pray without using the means that God has given us is almost as foolish as to use the means without praying. The two need to be combined together in all our battles. How many students have prayed for success on tests for which they have not adequately studied, right? Dear God, please give me knowledge of quadratic equations and the Franco-Prussian War and Spanish regular verbs because I have not studied for any of these tests, right? But neither could a church spend all their time plotting and strategizing program and growth schemes and not pray. There are indeed pastors, preachers I've heard, who, who attempt to sound holy by suggesting that they will just pray for the Spirit to give them words. And they don't really put in any study into preparation to preach. But then there's also preachers who must not boast about their long hours of study if there is no prayer and recognition that any fruit from the proclamation of God's word comes from God himself. And so for Joshua to make preparations is accepted and expected. And yet Joshua is also expecting the Lord to do something miraculous because that's the only way this is going to work. And so in the end, Joshua is assured of God's promises. And don't we like to be assured? It's good to be assured. We might know that our spouse loves us, but it's good to hear them say, I love you. To get a, an unexpected gift, to receive love in some active service. And so in the end, the report is made to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. How do they know? because of Rahab. Now, the first thing that we're told about Rahab is that she is a prostitute. Now, most Bibles provide a footnote that says that the word could also be translated innkeeper. It doesn't. (laughs) The ordinary use of the word is prostitute, who may also be an innkeeper. And it's because the church holds Rahab in such high regard for her role in redemptive history that parts of the church have tried to make her sound more honorable kind of like the Roman church who has venerated the Virgin Mary. But doing so misses the act of God's grace here. But don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. The New Testament calls her a prostitute while also affirming her faith. In Hebrews 11.31 and James 2.25. Hebrews 11.31, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. James 2.25, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, the other note to make in that is that the text nowhere suggests that any impropriety took place with the spies. In fact, there's often euphemisms that are used in Scripture, and they are carefully avoided here. They simply went into uh, her house, but there is no untoward uh, activities that took on. So the first thing that we're told is that Rahab was a prostitute. The second thing that we find out is that she's a liar. She lies about the whereabouts of the spies to protect them. And much ink has been spilled talking about this moral dilemma that she would be in. 
Because lying is a sin, and yet so would be turning over these innocent people that they might be killed. So she might be thinking, lies or the spies die, right? Do the ends justify the means? Is it okay to lie in order to save a life? What would Jesus do? (laughs) These are interesting predicaments, but they are not addressed by the text. They're not addressed in the account because they're not the point. There are some people who get so caught up in talking about Rahab's lie, they never get to talk about her truth, which is the point. And again, the New Testament, along with this passage itself, neither condemns nor commends Rahab for lying. It commends her for fearing the Lord. She's a pagan prostitute from Canaan, wicked Canaan. She's not saved because she's good. She's saved because God is good and great, and she has come to realize that. And so we see Rahab's protection of the spies, and then we hear what really is the, uh, the center and main point of this passage, Rahab's profession of faith. And her profession of faith follows what's known as a concentric or a chiastic construction. And I simply use those fancy words so that you know I paid attention in all my Bible classes. What it means is that there is essentially a mirroring that happens. It's sort of a one, two, three, four, four, three, two, one way in which her confession is recorded. There's a, a poetry to it. In verse 9, she begins by saying, I know that the Lord has given this land to you. That's mirrored then in how she ends at verse 11. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. And second, she says, a great fear of you has fallen on us. And that's mirrored by the middle of verse 11. Everyone's courage failed because of you. Third, she says, all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Which is mirrored in verse 11. Our hearts melted. And then fourth, at the center of her profession is the account in verse 10 of what we have heard and mirrored then those opening words of verse 11 when we heard it. So, so can, you, can you picture that? I know that the Lord has given this land to you. The great fear of this land has fallen on, on us. So that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. And she goes on, we have heard about all these things that have been done. And then comes back to it in verse 11. When we heard of it, our hearts melted. And everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. So that's the poetic style. And I emphasize that because the substance is highlighted right in the middle. And what's highlighted in the middle is that they have heard these historical acts that the Lord has performed. Verse 10. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. Her fear is not simply a fear for her life. Her fear and the fear of all Jericho is based on the actual historical actions of God. She doesn't just simply fear for her life, she fears the Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ is rooted in the actual historical activities of God in Christ. And that is why critical scholars for the past 150 years have spent their time trying to debunk the historicity of Scripture. Such critical scholars have been proved wrong time and time again. The historical and scientific data continue to confirm biblical revelation. 
because it's true. All critical scholars have been successful in doing is to successfully lie to generations of people. The gospel is rooted in historical fact that Jesus is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died on the cross and Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus ascended into heaven. Those historical facts have never been refuted and never can be. In fact, they've been substantiated again and again and again and again. And so the gospel that we proclaim must never be simply mere moralism or methodology. It is about the historical and miraculous work of God. True faith comes from knowledge and is built in knowledge, not experience. Just as true love is not simply an infatuation experience of two people falling in love with each other. Two people meet, but then they talk, they communicate, they find out about each other, find out their likes and dislikes, their character and commitments. Genuine faith is not warm, cozy feelings about some God. Faith comes by hearing what God has done for his people. Faith comes and grows by meditating on God's revealed word about who he is and what he has done for his people. And that's why worship services must not be about trying to generate or manipulate experiential feelings. Worship is the dialogue of God speaking to his people and then his people speaking in response in word and song and action. We hear the faith of Rahab professed, and we see her faith in action. She puts it in action by hiding the spies. She puts it in action by asking for rescue, because up to this point, she simply fears the Lord. And because she fears the Lord, she's seeking divine deliverance. Verse 12, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. In that language, she is asking for them to make an oath. But it's a special kind of oath language that she uses. The word that's translated kindness is that wonderful, rich Hebrew word, hesed. The Hebrew word hesed is the one that is regularly used to speak of the Lord's loving kindness. The Lord's covenantal love for his people. The Lord's steadfast love. In fact, notice that she uses in her confession of faith the covenant name of the Lord. In verses 9, 10, and 11, she doesn't refer to him as the generic God, but as Yahweh, the Lord. And so she has shown hesed kindness to God's people, and she's asking for them to show hesed love to her and her family, swearing it by the hesed Lord. And clearly the spies agree, and they respond, our lives for your lives. And so it is we have Rahab's protection of spies and Rahab's uh, profession of faith. And then we have Rahab's provision of rescue. Having agreed to help her, Rahab asks for a sign to guarantee the promise. Doesn't that sound like a covenantal thing, right? A sign to guarantee the promise. And they give her a sign, a scarlet cord. The early church fathers 
saw this blood-colored scarlet cord as a foreshadowing of Christ's atoning sacrifice. Modern commentators are not so sure, and yet most commentators see a connection of the scarlet cord in the window of her house connected to the Passover lamb's blood around the door frames of the houses to protect Israel when the Lord struck down the firstborn of Egypt in the Exodus. And everybody sees that as a foreshadowing of the atoning work of Christ. So, yeah. Rahab and her family will be rescued, and the scarlet cord is the sign guaranteeing the promise. In chapter 6, we will see the fulfillment of that promise of rescue to Rahab. But for right now, I want us to see the rescue that we receive from Rahab. The gospel account of Matthew begins with a genealogy. Boring, right? What can there possibly be exciting in a genealogy? And that genealogy traces the ancestral line from Abraham to David through the exile to Jesus Christ. Here's verses 5 and 6 of Matthew 1. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. Rahab is the mother of the kinsman redeemer Boaz, who is, uh, whose wife is Ruth. So that Ruth the Moabitess and Rahab the Canaanite are ancestors to King David and ultimately to King Jesus. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, is part of the direct descendant line to Jesus Christ. Could you pick a more unlikely person to be an ancestor to Christ? Not only is Rahab part of the kingdom of Christ, she is part of the line of Christ. Indeed, the God of the Bible is a God of rich grace, who calls to himself people who are unworthy, who are disgraceful, who are fallen sinful, wretched. God does not love the lovely. He makes lovely those whom he loves. And if God can rescue a Rahab, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. We must never think that the church is only for clean, respectable folks. Someone has said that's like saying that hospitals are only for doctors and nurses and x-ray machines instead of for sick people. The church is not a social club. We are a refuge for sinners who have been touched by the grace of God. God delights to save sinners and to transform transgressors. Here we have a woman transformed from pagan prostitutes for forever is known as redeemed Rahab. Who are you tempted to think is outside the reach of God's grace? In what ways are you tempted to think that God cannot transform you? Indeed, may we go to the Rahabs of the world who fear the Lord and seek what is freely offered to us in the gospel, Jesus Christ. And may we look at our own sinful condition and look to the scarlet cord of Christ's atoning sacrifice, which brings life and transformation. Indeed, may the truth set us free. Amen.